All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing the series, In Him, For Him. And today, the title of the message is, You Were But God. Now, a friend of mine, Chuck Helmus, many of you know Chuck, we were talking several weeks ago, and uh, he, he said that he did a study of all the passages where it says, but God. And those are some of the greatest passages in all the Bible. And so uh, when he was telling me that story in, uh, this past week when I was studying for the sermon, I was like, you know something? This is one of those passages. You were... But God. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So look at the introduction down on your outline. The new spiritual realities that have been provided for you, and that's what we looked at the first two weeks of this study, those spiritual realities. You can go back and look at that. Uh, they're found in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1. They can only be realized when you discover the true crisis of your soul and then receive the cure provided by Christ. And so really, if, if these are going to be a reality in your life, you got to realize the crisis that you're living in, and then you need to receive the cure that, that God has provided for you through Christ. Now, in the passage today, Paul is describing the act or the process of salvation, or as he puts it, what it means being in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at carefully this morning. So look on your outline. First of all, your predicament, your crisis. No one seems to want to know about the possible crises around them or in them. Why is it that we put off doctor's appointments? Why do we put things off? Uh, things that may uh, cause us to receive bad news. Many times we put those things off. Many in our society know more about their favorite football team. That's pop, that hurts, doesn't it? More about their favorite football team than the possible crisis our country is facing. Many know more about certain families on TV and their crises more than possibly their own family's crises. But there is one crisis we better face because it has eternal consequences. In the first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives us a true picture of the human condition, the predicament that we find ourselves in, the crisis in which we all have lived under or are currently living under. And so look on your outline again, your predicament, your crisis. You were spiritually dead. Now, the definition of predicament, it, it literally means a difficult and dangerous situation. Before we came to know Jesus Christ, or, or some of you who possibly have never come to know him as your Lord and Savior, let me just describe your, your, your predicament right now. You are in a difficult and a dangerous place to be right now as it relates to your soul. And the scriptures clearly spell that out. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you, Christ made alive, who were what? Dead in trespasses and sin. Now, now think of this this morning. For you here today, you're in one of two camps. You were spiritually dead or are spiritually dead. That, that's the condition that all of us find ourselves in. It doesn't matter where you go in this world who you rub shoulders with, who's in your family, who's a part of this church, who you're sitting beside this morning. It doesn't, none of that really, the only two things that, that we can do as far as classifying people, it's not based on race or anything like that, it's this. You either were dead in trespasses or sin or you are dead in the trespasses of sin. That's everyone. One, all of us fit in one of those two categories. 
So this was or is your predicament or your crises, but how did we end up here? Well, the Bible tells us there's two places there that we wound up. First of all, it says in verse 1, trespasses. It means to fall, stumble, or go in the wrong direction. Sin, it means to miss the mark, falling short of what is required. And so when you look at the condition of your soul, when you look at who you truly are, the Bible describes you before you come to know Christ that you're spiritually dead, and the way you wound up there is because of sins and trespasses. Those are the things that put you in that situation. Now, where does it lead? The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of the sin and the trespasses is death. That's a speaking of spiritual death. Now, there's three ways that we can view our predicament. Now, this is not on your outline. We could come at it with this whole idea. We are okay. We just lost our way. We just need some guidance. Then we can make our way once again. Another, we are sick. We just need some help. Then we can do what's needed to get where we need to be. Thirdly, we are literally dead spiritually and absolutely have no hope in and of ourselves. That, that, those are really the alternatives that are left to us. And now, let me just say this. A biblical view of our predicament is the last one. We are literally dead spiritually and there's nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do about it in and of ourselves. It won't come from us. So, you were, when you look at the context of verse 1, when it says you were and you have that description, it means this. Committing sinful acts does not make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. We were born in this condition. We were born with this crisis. We were born with the predicament that we find ourselves in. And there's absolutely nothing we can do in and of ourselves. Colossians chapter 2, look here on the screen. And you being dead in your trespasses, he has made alive together with him, that's Christ, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, those things where we just totally missed the mark, that was against us, those are the things that caused us to be guilty before God, which was contrary to us, it means it wasn't working in our favor to be in that situation and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when it says that he has taken it out of the way it literally means this it no longer stands against us let me just say this today right now if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior your sin stands against you How, how do I know that because it's what brings the guilt it's what brings the shame And it stands against you. But the Bible says that Jesus did something in which it no longer stands against us. And it literally means this. It no longer stands against us in court. In the heavenly throne of God. The heavenly court of God. If we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And we've come on the terms of these verses here. Listen. Our sin will not stand against us in the court of law. When it comes to eternity. That, that's very refreshing. If you, if you don't understand that, you need to understand that. Here, here, here's something else. It gets worse. Your predicament, being spiritually dead, means you were or are following the world. You're following the world. How, how do we know that? Look at verse 2. It says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. So, so no longer were you spiritually dead. There was something dead about who you were, your, your sin, your trespasses, but it, it got worse. All of a sudden, you, you, you were prone 
to just walk the way of the world. Listen, we are all influenced far more than we think by the society's attitudes, habits, and preferences. We are products of our culture. Many of us are. The fashions, what the newspaper says, the perspectives, and so on. But many of our culture's values, listen, are contrary to God and his standards. They don't measure up. And so therefore, if we were say, if we were there and we say, okay, I want to honor the one who created me. I want to, to come into a right relationship with him. Let, let me just say this. The, it can only be provided from, through Christ. But let me say this. On your own initiative, you'll never get there. Why? Because a dead person can't do anything about a situation. Can't do anything about a situation. But not only are we dead, there's, we are alive to something. And that's the fact that we're following the way of the world. And that's a problem. The Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Don't, don't let the world's systems box you in. Don't let it make you become what you are. Don't, don't let the world do that. 1 John 2 says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when he says the love of the world, he's not talking about the people that make up the world. Listen, we are called to love others. We're even called to love our enemies. So he's not talking about hating the people of the world. He's talking about hating the systems of the world, hating the influences of the world that are contrary to where God is leading and where God desires us to be. And we are to literally get to the point where we're not in love with those things. Next, your predicament of being spiritually dead means you are also or, or were following the enemy. Following the enemy. Look at verse 2 again. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That means there was some, there's something working behind the scenes. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're dead to who Christ is or who God is, but you're alive to the things of this world. You're also alive and being influenced by the enemy himself who's orchestrating the things of this world, who's orchestrating the things in your life. You see, we often underestimate the power of the spirit world. You know why we do that? Because we can't see it physically. But y'all, it's definitely there. It's there. We can't ignore it. The enemy, though he's been defeated by Christ, he hasn't surrendered yet. How many of you know that from living life? <laughs> He hasn't, he hasn't surrendered yet. He's, there's still a fight in him. The, Jesus said himself, he is a murderer and a liar, and he still continues his work. But there's going to come a day when that's going to be taken care of. But right now, he's still controlling things. Ephesians 6.12 says it this way, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, let me just say this. We do wrestle against flesh and blood, but the real battle, here's what you need. This is what this verse is saying. We do battle against those things, but the real battle, the context that, that supersedes the battle that we even have in our flesh is the fact there's someone orchestrating all the things that hits our lives through the flesh. That's what he's saying here. He says, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And where are they? They're in heavenly places. Now, this heavenly places is not a reference to heaven. It literally means the spirit world that's out there, that's all around us. And it's not the good spirit world. Lastly, your predicament of being spiritually dead means you were or are following the flesh. There is a part of your flesh that's there. Look at what he says in uh, verse 3 among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, this is very interesting how this is, 
how this is referenced. You see, we were or are greatly influenced by our flesh. There are dire consequences to following our flesh. When you look at the word lust there in this context, it literally means strong inclination. It's, the, it's, it's, it's falling for desires of every sort. And by the way, if we let our flesh embrace the desires that, the desires that the enemy are put, is putting before us and the world is putting for us, guess what? Many times it does lead to our own destruction. Here's another one, desires. It emphasizes strong willingness, wanting, seeking something with great diligence. That's what the flesh does. How many of you know that from personal experience? And then the mind. The reason mind is put here, it almost seems out of place, but the reason it's put there is because it describes the deliberate choices that defy the will of God. Instead of moving towards the will of God and what he has for us, he says that the battle of the mind is moving us closer to where the world is, where the enemy is, and where our flesh is trying to take us. Romans chapter 8, look here on the, verse, on the screen. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, they literally set their minds on the things of the flesh. That means they're pursuing, they're, they're logically trying to come to grips with the fact that they want to follow the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. It's, a, it's all about focus. It's all about where you direct your attention. But it says this, for to be carnally minded is death. It leads to death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is at enmity against God. It's at war with God. So then those who are in the flesh, look what it says, are incapable of pleasing God. And that's what your life should be about, bringing glory and honor to God, pleasing God. But we're far from it when we follow this path. Next, our predicament. It only gets worse. You were or are children of wrath. Look at verse three. Look at the last part. And it says this. It, he, he's described the fact we're spiritually dead. What put us there? Our, our trespasses, our sins. And then it says how we're walking, how we're conducting our lives at this point. And then at the last part of verse three, and we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. It's not a good situation here. God's wrath, let me just remind you about his wrath. Is consistent, just, controlled, and judicial. Paul says that our very natures, in that, by our very natures, we are all deserving of the wrath of God. How many of you came here to hear that this morning? <laughs> we don't want to go there. That, that's not, listen, we don't have to live under that cloud. The Bible says, you were. Paul's addressing those who have come to terms with who Jesus is. They come to terms with the salvation that God provides. And so he's not talking about those who are. In he said, you were. He's describing those who were saved, who have been transformed by, by God's spirit. He, he's speaking to them. But guess what? The reality in this room right now is the fact that some are not, they weren't, are not were, but are. If you don't know him, that is your condition. And it's very bleak. Romans 5 says this, much more than having been justified by his or Christ's blood, we shall be saved from wrath. How? Through him. 
through Christ, what's provided by Christ. So in verses one through three, Paul is saying that our predicament is that without a savior, all of us are dead in sin and incapable of any spiritual good. That without a savior, all of us are captured and blinded by the enemy. That without a savior, all of us remain in bondage to the cravings, desires, and lust of our flesh. That without a savior, all of us are under the wrath of God and sentenced to eternal torment in a place of condemnation, a place called hell. It's not a good place. <laughs> but you see, Paul, he writes this letter in such, in such a way that he, he, he hopes that those who are hearing this, that that's where they were. You were. Notice the terminology in verse 1. So something's got to change. Listen, if we misdiagnose our condition, our predicament, then the results, listen, will be eternally disastrous. Next. Here's the good news. There's a remedy for our predicament. There's a cure. And so we see God's panacea, his cure all. Now, now notice what the scripture says. We were, verses one through three, but God begins verse four. Now, let me just say this. Our salvation hangs entirely on those two words. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved, but God. We were hopeless, but God. We were self-destructing, but God. We were lost in sin, but God. We were going to experience the wrath of God, but God. Why did God do it? Here's what you'll notice in the verses to come. Notice it is not because of anything related to us. It was not prompted by our merits. It is entirely prompted. Listen, this is what's amazing about all this. It's all prompted by the fact that of, of God's character, of his, who is, what his character is all about. Uh, so many times I think we, we think that God, when he looks, when he looks at us, he, he, he's pitying us and he, he looks at our situation and, and the reason he did that was to, to bring compassion to us. I think a lot of us would like to think that that's what God was doing, but there was a higher calling than that. Let me tell you something about God. That's the reason it's important that we study the nature of who God is. It was in his nature to reach out to us. That's what it is, is, is who God is. So it's all about his nature. So the first thing that we see here, he is merciful. He is merciful. When he reached out to the fact that we were hopeless, he was reaching out from the fact that he has the character of a person who, is, who has mercy. That's just who he is. The Bible says in Psalms 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now look here on the screen. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Let me just tell you this. We don't deserve his love, but his grace reaches out with his love. Here's the second thing we need to see. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. According to verse three, you know what we deserve? His wrath. So mercy means he withholds his wrath. Grace means he brings his love to our lives. We are saved entirely because of the undeserved favor of God who, who has responded to us despite our desperate predicament. Let me give you an example of this. Suppose that you were called by one of those beauty businesses which specializes in makeovers. You ever seen that? 
It used to be a TV show. You remember, I remember years ago, it was a TV show. And, and what they did is they, they, they took a loved one out of the family and they, they, they worked with him for like 60 days. And, and then they had this great unveiling. How many of you remember the TV show? And all of a sudden the doors would open and the husband's like, oh, right, I got a new wife. You know, he's, he's like, <laughs> he's all excited in the family. The, the, the astonishment's on their faces and everything. L- listen to this. If you were offered a free makeover, should you feel flattered? Should you take pride in your beauty? Probably not. The makeover is needed because of your lack of beauty. Have you ever thought of it that way? I hope no one in this room has ever been called on to be in a makeover. <laughs> I'm getting ready to eat a lot of words here. The makeup is needed because of your lack of beauty. No beauty business is going to advertise its work by by selecting a beautiful woman and then making only slight improvements to her beauty. They're going to take the most (laughs) hopeless case they can find (laughs) and then take the credit for the transformation. (laughs) You see, God is offering to take our hopeless predicament and transforming it. That's what he wants to do. You've been invited to to beautify your soul, to to bring it about under the allegiance of what God desires. Why? Why did he do this? Number one, because he's merciful, but number two, he is loving. And again, he's acting because of his character. And y'all, he acted because of compassion he had for us. We know that, but that's not the primary reason he did it. He acted because he is merciful, and secondly, because he is loving. So God did not love us because we are lovable, but because God is loving. Look at verse 4 again. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which, how? He loved us. It wasn't sparked by love that we had for him. It was a love love he had for us. Romans 5 says this. For when we were still without strength, means we could do nothing about our situation. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were, what, still sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. When we were in that hopeless, pathetic situation, because of his mercy, because of his love, he reached through all that mess and reached into our lives Because of his love. Because that's who he is. John Piper, if you've ever heard of John Piper, he's a real deep thinker, thinking theologian. I I love to see some of his writing, but here's what he said. You will never experience the fullness of the greatness of God's love for you if you don't see his love in relation to your former deadness. Here's what he's saying. That, that That is fitting for the verses we're looking at today. If you do not see yourself where you were in verses one through three, and you don't get a clear picture of where you were, you will never fully understand the love that God truly has for you. But you know what many of us do? You know what many people in the world do? I'm not so bad. I mean, do you realize there's people, I have actually met people who have told me that they can't remember the last time they sinned. You say you're joking. I am dead serious. It's kind of intimidating when you talk to people like that. Because you, know, you know that whole day you've already put several in the books, you know. But the thing is, people think they're okay. 
People still have an idea of their soul as, yeah, I might experience a little sickness here, but if I could just read the right book and if I could just somehow get my mind right, it'll be all right. Or, yeah, I did mess up over here, and, and yeah, boy, I really messed up. Man, I'll give you that, but, but let me just tell you, I'm sure I've gained God's favor because let me tell you what I've done since then. You're still in a hopeless case. You're, you're a hopeless case, even if you have that kind of rationale. We got to see where we were to understand the gravity of his love. And that's what these verses are telling us. Next, God's panacea, his cure-off. Next, he is sacrificial. He's sacrificial. He, he, was on, listen, he wasn't only merciful. He wasn't only loving. With those two things, he reached out. He, at that point, he became sacrificial. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, we, he, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Look at Romans chapter 5. Much more than having been justified. The word justified, here's what it means. Declared righteous. That's what it means. Okay? So, so it's not a matter of you going out here and living a more righteous life. You can't pull it off. Trust me. It's him saying, I'm going to declare you righteous. Okay? That, that's what he did. That's the terminology here. How did he do it? Did he do it by you turning over a new leaf? No. Look at it. It's right here on the screen. By his own blood, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's through Christ. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, the sacrifice of his life. Next, I got to hurry. God's panacea, his cure-all. He is deliverer. He's not only sacrificial. He's not only merciful. He's not only loving. He is a deliverer. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look at verse six. And raised us up together and made us, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, when it says heavenly places here, it's talking about the very presence of God. Not like it was in, later in this book. Heavenly places is describing the realm of, the, of darkness. But here we're talking about the realm of God. Now, look on your outline. He is deliverer. Here's the present reality is that we can live above this current reality. Do you know we can live above all this mess? How many of you would agree that it's hard to live above the mess in this world? Live above the enemy, live above what the world's trying to throw at you, live above your own stinking flesh sometimes. It's tough, isn't it? But here's what we need to understand. When he's, what he's describing in verse 6 is this. The reality that will be one day fully realized, you do know there's a, there's a full realization day coming. When every, all the things, that, the spiritual realities, everything that he has for us, it's all going to be, I mean, realized in a great way. But in the meantime, we can have a flavor of that that we can still live above all that. Listen, when death came to a notorious character in a small community, his coffin was being carried in a hearse to the cemetery. His mourners passed some of the places he had formerly visited. First, they drove by a tavern where he spent much time and squandered much of his paycheck. But the old temptation to indulge in alcohol for the person in the coffin was no longer there. Think about that. A few blocks down the street, they came to a racetrack where he lost thousands of dollars on the horses rather than feeding his own family. But the urge to waste his money for the one in the coffin was no longer there. 
A little further on, the procession went by a theater uh, that he had often attended, but the vulgar titles on the marquee and the suggested pictures had no effect on him. None of these vices and allurements could attract him. And you know why? The answer is obvious. He was dead. He was dead. I mean, at one time, he, he couldn't pass these places without his flesh crying out, desiring, wanting to move in that direction. But now, because he's dead, there's no longer desire, there's no longer allurement. Let me just describe to you, the only way that we can live above what this world's throwing at us, above what the enemy throws at us, above what our own flesh throws at us, is this. The only way we can do that is to be dead to it. But you know what a lot of us do? I remember, I've done this. I remember at times when I wanted to live for the Lord and yet there were some things that I still, I wanted to live for the Lord and some of you have been, you're going to think bad of me, but you've done the same thing. I wanted to live for the Lord, but I still wanted to partake of certain things over here. And so you know what I would do? Instead of being dead to those things, which the Bible says I needed to be, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to rationalize why I thought I needed that. I wanted to rationalize why, oh, surely God wouldn't take this from me. But you know what he says about our, our current condition? I mean, our former condition? He says we were dead. Now he's asking us to be dead again only because there's a resurrection that is to come. He wants us to be dead to certain things. But listen, here's the terminology. To be dead to certain things but being made alive to certain things also. And that's what he's desiring for us. So there's a lot to this life. So our present reality is that we can live above our current reality. The Bible says it this way in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, okay? But Christ lives in me and the life of which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only way we can have success in the spirit in which God has called us to is for us to be dead to the things of the world, dead to the things of the enemy, and to be dead to the things that draw our flesh. Not rationalize with it. Be dead to those things. Next, he is deliverer. There's a future reality. We're going to be able to live beyond the current, this current reality. Paul said it this way. How many of you, if you're not familiar with it, you need to be. Romans chapter 7, is, it brings great, I shouldn't say joy. Uh, it relieves the pressure a little bit when I read that chapter. Do you know that Paul in Romans chapter 7 is describing his battle with his own flesh? you've heard the terminology. Oh man, the things I do, I wish I didn't do those things. The things I don't do, I wish I did do those certain things. Do you hear the struggle with the flesh there? At the very end of that, you can hear as he's describing in verse seven, and near the end, you can see that he's growing weary of his battle with his own flesh. And then he cries out. Listen to what he cries out. Look at it here on the screen. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. You, you know what he's saying? I think what he's saying is there's going to be a future reality in which the battles of the flesh will no longer be there. The battles with the enemy will no longer be there. The battles with this world will no longer be there. How many of you are looking forward to that day? 
No more battles, no more shame, no more guilt, no more of that. Listen, the Bible, I've I've preached this before. I've done this a lot in sermons. There's two categories of what awaits us in our future reality. If we we go to heaven to be with God, there's no mores. Listen to this. The Bible says it this way. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more temptation, no more disease, no more tears, no more flesh, no more world, no more enemy. Our future reality means those things will be removed. How many of you will sign up for that one? Yeah. But there's also the second part to this, the much mores. You ever heard of streets of gold? You ever heard of walls of jasper, pearly gates? Have you ever heard of the throne of God where praise is going on like you could, you could never imagine? Those are the much mores. Colossians 3 says it this way. When Christ, who is, our light, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him where? In glory. This is talking about a future reality. One day we will be delivered from this world, but in the meantime, we can live above this world. We don't have to fall to it. Next, God's purposes, his causes. Why would God go to all this trouble to do this? Here's the first one. To display his grace. Now think of that. The terminology that we're reading in these verses is the fact that one of the main reasons he's done all that he's done is he wants to display his character. That's what it is. Let me tell you about God's character. When his character is revealed, glory comes to him. That's what he's seeking. He's seeking that. So why did he do it? What was the purpose of all this? To display his, his grace. The primary purpose of God for sending his son to die in, in the sinner's place was not to produce salvation for the sinner. That, that was a secondary reason. But rather the demonstration of the grace of God for all of eternity. That's deep when you think about it. Now think about this, y'all. You gotta get this. The salvation that Christ produced for us was a secondary reason to why he did what he did. The primary reason, based on the verses we're getting ready to read, is to display his grace for all eternity. That's a big deal. That's the part we miss when we read this. Now, here's what it looks like. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, the fact that where we were but God that in the ages to come that he might show the exceeding riches of what? Of his grace. Of his grace. That's deep when you think about it. Ephesians 1.7 says this. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. How does it come about? According to the riches of his what? Grace. In the context of salvation, God has provided grace Look on your outline, and it is the opposite of works. The opposite of works. Salvation is all about what God provides, not what we can earn. In the case of the salvation for sinners, it is the grace of God which is on display. In the case of the judgment of God or the judgment of wicked wickedness, it is the holiness and justice of God which is demonstrated. So here's what you need to understand. As we fast forward to eternity and the judgments are happening, Here's what we need to understand. For those who've come to to salvation through Christ, what will be on display is is the fact that uh, will be his grace. When the judgment of sinners occurs, what will be on display is his holiness and his judgment. That will be on display. 
or his justice, excuse me. Now, here's another thing. God's purpose, his, his causes, to display his grace, but secondly, to dis- display his kindness. To display his kindness. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, the second part of that verse, in his kindness towards us, how? In Christ Jesus. He's saying that all these things that are available to us are the product of what Christ has done. That's what it means in Christ. Okay, Titus 3, look here. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's where we were. You were, but here's the but God. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to what? His mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So y'all listen. When we get to heaven and we're standing there with God, it won't be us who will be on display not in the context of us doing something. But what will be on display is his grace. And we will be displayed at that point in the context of his grace, not in the context of our works. Now, we're going to peel that back a little bit more in just a little while. But there's a second thing. To display his kindness. To display his kindness, look on your outline, is the opposite of wrath. Is his kindness that withholds his wrath from us when we come on his terms. Next, your propensity, your carnality. The definition of propensity, I wanted to teach you some new words today. That's what these words are there for. It is a natural inclination or tendency, okay? So your propensity, number one, is to earn what is freely given. Our, t- our tendencies as human beings, our, our natural inclination is to earn what has been freely given. Y'all, that is the greatest obstacle to people coming to know Christ. It's, it's greater than anything. They tell us seven out of 10 people who believe they're going to heaven. Listen to this. This will blow your mind. Seven out of 10 people who believe they're going to heaven are going there because they're good people or they do God work, good works. Seven out of 10 Can I tell you what that is? That is a misdiagnosis. They haven't found the right cure. And guess what? It will mean eternal condemnation. That's hard to deal with, isn't it? But that's what these verses are telling us. I I mean, think of this. It is a great offense to God for us to think that we can earn our way to heaven. Look at verse eight. For by grace, that grace that he wants to display... For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's not about you. When we get to heaven, it won't be. You will not be defined by your works. You'll be defined by the grace of God that's been extended to you. That's what he's saying here. And then he says, he says, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Now, now think of that. Think about it. God offers salvation at the great expense of his son. Think about this. Let's, let's be, okay, let's take a logical view of scripture. God has provided a way through his son for us to come to him and be right in right standing with him. Think about how offensive it would be to God for you to say, and that's what, a lot of, that's what seven out of 10 people are saying, for them to say, thank you, God, but no thanks. I'll try it my way and let's see how far that'll get me. It won't get you anywhere, not to God. It is offensive to God for you to say, 
I'm going to bypass the provision made by Jesus Christ and do it on my own. Think of the arrogance that's behind all that. Think of that. Here's something else. Think about it. God offers salvation at great expense of his own son's life. And then you say, that's okay. I prefer to do it my way. There's two offenses to this. This is not on your outline. First of all, overlooking what God has provided. It's like someone bringing you a gift and it's sacrificial for them to give you that gift. I mean, it cost them so much. There was so much behind it. And, 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 you, and, the, and then walking up to you and, you and you say, I don't need that. That's just on a small scale of what we're talking about here. Here's another one. Here's the other offense to God. Thinking that you even had the potential to pay the debt. That's an offense to God. Can, can, I, can I feel you in on something? How many of you have ever read the Gospels? Do you, know, you do know that God, Jesus himself, only, the only people he really got onto were the Pharisees. You know, what, you know what the Pharisees, you know what their mantra was? You know what they were all about? These two offenses. Here it is. I mean, he came at them hard. Here, here's what they were saying. I'm going to overlook what you're going to provide. That's what the Pharisees were saying. I see you doing all these great things. I hear you say you're the Messiah. I, I hear you say you're the Son of Man. I hear all that. Yeah, yeah, that's cute. Okay, thank you. Uh, we, we appreciate all that. But, but let me just tell you, I, I'm going to overlook this. I, th I think there's something I can do here. But he also got them for the fact that they thought that they could pay their own debt. They really did. Here it is. Galatians 2, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, not by works of what we're doing. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Here's what that means. The seven out of 10 people, uh, people that say, I'll get there on my own, it's saying you're wrong. It doesn't happen that way. Works have no place in the terms God has set for salvation. The only thing we bring to the table, listen, is faith. It's the only thing we bring to the table. And literally what faith is, it's, it's reaching out to the provision that Christ has, has, has done. You're reaching out to it. That, that's it. Salvation does not come by works, religion, by anything we might conceive as earning God's grace. Grace saves us through faith. Nothing more, nothing less. Consider the three key words in verse 8. Look, look at verse 8. There's the word grace, saved, and faith. Grace is the source. Faith is the means. And salvation is the result. That's what it is. Next, your propensity, your carnality is to exhibit what is fraudulent glory. I want you to look at verse nine. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. What's the opposite of works? Well, we already determined that. It's grace, something freely given, something extended out to you. Works is what you're offering up. Works, listen, works and what you're offering up to God doesn't get you anywhere. But receiving the grace that he's reaching down to you with does. That's what it's all about. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 3, I love this verse. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You ever met these people? <laughs> kind of interesting when you do. God, listen, here's what you need to understand. God will never share his glory. Wouldn't it be horrible to spend eternity listening to people brag about what they did to earn their salvation? Think about that. 
How many of you know people that almost everything that comes out of their mouth is ah, 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 ah? You know what they're doing? <laughs> I don't have a clue what you. Anyway, listen to this. I taught Sunday school for 50 years, I served as a deacon for two decades. I gave a million dollars to world missions. I changed dressings for burn victims. Can you imagine someone going up to Jesus in heaven, putting their arm around him and saying, you and me, Jesus, we did it. You died on the cross and I baked the cookies. <laughs> Think about how crazy that is. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the full price for our salvation. Next, God predetermination. It, literally, his confirmation. You are to receive what he offers by faith. No other way. You receive it by faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Here it is. John three sixteen. For God did what? He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When it says he so loved the world, it's not talking about world systems, world's fashions, world's perspectives. It's talking about the people of the world. For God loved the people of the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. It is a picture of grace. You are to receive what he offers by faith, but not only that, you are to perceive what he ordains by faith. First of all, his achievement. You are a work of art in Christ. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Think about that. If we are his workmanship, it, means, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean, look at me, God. Look at what I've done. It's what he did. Next, we, uh, you are to perceive what he ordains by faith, his accomplishment. You are expected to do good works through Christ. Here's what it says. It says, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. That means God has an expectation that good works is not what gets you to salvation, but good works will what? Will follow salvation. It will come. Next, or here, here's, here's something to think about. We are the crowning achievement of Almighty God. Did you know that? We are. How do we go from sinner, enemy of God, someone who offends the heart of God, even in our attempts, to be in his crowning achievement? How does that happen? It's by embracing what Christ did for us. And by us embracing what Christ did for us, when we get to heaven, listen, it won't be, hey, I did this, I did that, I did that. We're just standing there, and guess what we represent? The trophies of God's grace. That's what we'll be, trophies of God's grace. Not about what we've done or what we think we've done. So here it is right here. Here's how I'm going to wrap it up. You were, verses one through three, you were spiritually dead. You were following the world. You're the, you were following the enemy, the flesh. You were children of wrath. That's where you were. But here, let's look at it differently. Maybe you're here today. And you know you've never received what he's done. You thought you could earn your way there. You, you're, one of, you're seven of ten people who believe that all I got to do is just try harder. Just try to do a little bit more. Listen, if that's where you are this morning, here, here's what you need to understand about these first three verses. You are spiritually dead. You are following the world. You're following the enemy. You're following your flesh. You are a child of wrath. That means wrath is coming to you. But then what does it say in verse 4? 
but God. But God's provided the cure. You embrace it. Listen, when we get to heaven, there's not gonna be a contest to see who was most deserving of God's grace. Now let's flip that around. A lot of people, I did this, I did that. Let's flip it around. Can you imagine people being up there saying, I tell you one thing, I was the worst of sinners. I, I did this and I did that. Listen, it won't be about that. His grace is gonna cover it all. Listen, we started dead to start with. There's only one, listen, there will only be one contest in heaven. When we look back and see what we were before, when we, when we see the predicament we were in and how he rescued us, when we remember he reached out and brought us into his family and how he held us in his hand, and when we see Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, the only contest will be to see which one of us can sing the loudest. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wrench like me. I was once lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's the only contest I believe we'll see in heaven is putting his grace on display. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you this morning. We just thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that we can read passages in your word and that, that, that basically described who we were before you. Then, then we can come to a, a verse in which the whole thing changes and it says, but God. Father, we thank you for those promises in your word. We thank you for that amazing grace. I pray for that person that's here this morning and maybe for the first time they came to terms with the fact that they weren't or, or where it says that you were, that they've realized they're, they're not back there. They are. They are standing in judgment. They're, they're, they're dead in trespasses of their sin. And Lord, they've come to that. They think they can somehow earn their way there, but Lord, this morning they discovered that is a great offense to you. Father, help them to come on your terms. Lord, we thank you so much for this amazing grace that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be here at the front.